Welcome, James. How's it going? What's up, dude? How you been? I've been really good, man. It's good to see you. You too. I'm glad I dressed up for you. Right? I well, I did my yeah. uh, did my recording for the LCI Congress at six o'clock this morning. So <laughs> I'm like, I should have thought all the way through this, but I had a. Yeah. That's why I have a nice shirt on today. For nice. One. Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone check the show notes for more information thank you lci now to the show welcome to the show james pease good friend of mine long time lean practitioner james why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience tell them a little bit about who is james pease oh it's a deep and dark complicated question but i'll give you the the career the professional highlights so i studied management science in college, um, mainly because I dropped out of engineering and then I never really used it again um, until like 15 years into my career journey. So I ended up getting a job as an intern in design and construction for a hospital. And uh, that was 17 years ago now. Uh, Mostly did lump sum construction projects, low bid. Um, That was really the only thing, anything they taught me how to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I changed jobs and uh, got introduced to CM at risk with a little bit of pre-construction and design assist trade partners. And it was right really at the beginning of BIM uh, for construction. And so we were arguing about like whether we were going to pay for it or not, or whether we actually (laughs) wanted BIM and it would add any value. And this is on like a a ground up Oshpod hospital, which now it's a no brainer, but then it was kind of new and, I think we invested a lot in people learning how to do it. Um, and from there I changed and I, I spent 12 years at Sutter Health and was fortunate when I started at Sutter Health to land on one of the early IPD projects. And uh, so there are definitely a lot of people uh, there that got it moving, but I, I landed on a project that I was told by Dave Pixley, you have to do all your projects with IPD from now on. So I, I didn't know what that meant. I took the contract home and uh, right. read it and, and I, he was my boss and he just hired me. So I, I didn't know otherwise. I found out years later that I was the only one that really listened and just did it. Um, <laughs> Were you the new guy? I was the new guy. And Perfect. so it was, uh, my first project was like a, a $20 million project, uh, which was a good size to learn on because I made a lot of mistakes, but they weren't so big that leadership noticed. Uh, so yeah. I'd recommend that if you can try Start not- small. That's good advice, James already, already given the nuggets start small. Yeah. You know, don't start so small that you can't gain anything. So a project has to be big enough that the upfront investment will give you some kind of return, but don't start so big that if you, something goes wrong, you get fired. Like that's bad. <laughs> that, that is bad. Uh, so I had the opportunity to work on over 20 IPD projects while I was at Sutter. It was really a lot of fun. And about a year ago, I left. And so I'm now the executive director for design and construction at UCSF Health. And so we do 
everything from kind of small equipment replacements up to uh, full gut remodels on floors and uh, a new hospital tower that we're working on over in Oakland. And the hope is to build off the work uh, done by Stuart Ekblatt and team on major capital projects to start implementing IPD with a full integrated form of agreement in the public space so that we can create some case studies for other public owners out there and see if we can't shake this loose a little bit. Please, please shake so, it loose. So, and now, then I got introduced yeah. just one last thing to lean construction. Yeah. When I started at Sutter, I got invited to the LCI meetings and it was like all of that lean manufacturing yeah. stuff I did in college. All of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, I studied something about this and, um, seems like it's been a nice intersection now. No, that is an excellent background. But that uh, that last little part, you're, you're downplaying how big that is. 20, 20 lean IPD projects, right? And do you distinguish the difference between lean IPD and IPD? And integrated um, project delivery for everybody who doesn't know the acronym book bookmarks and glossary we're dealing in. I, I can give a little, uh, so I do, I didn't used to. So I would say exactly. lean, lean construction, a lean project could have any contract model. And that is where you would, um, you would implement last planner system. Uh, you'd be looking at uh, using target value design. If you can get your partners on board early uh, implementation of five S just keeping the worksite clean, I would say is a lean, a lean principle. So all of this borrowed from, the Toyota way and manufacturing right. and with various implementations in construction IPD. Um, I used to think as long as you were had an integrated team, I was calling it IPD. I'm now kind of transitioned to the camp where I think an integrated contract where design and construction are under a single contract with a shared risk and reward pool. Um, where there's some mutual indemnification of parties, I think you will get better outcomes. So I would call that kind of a true integrated form of agreement, true IPD approach. Um, I put lean IPD because I have experienced, you can have an integrated contract and still run things very traditionally and not unlock the value of having everybody on board mm. early. So. For me, the, the sweet spot is taking lean construction principles and combining them with an integrated contract where scope can flow back and forth between design and construction partners uh, with relatively little friction so that you're not arguing about um, transferring scope. It's, it's in everyone's best interest to let the scope go to wherever it can best be done. Um, nice. So that, that's what I would call lean IPD, combination of you. There's one thing that we're not going to debate on. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. And I, I like too that you told everybody from your perspective, and it's it's a rich perspective, James, that you have that anybody, any contract type can do lean construction. I totally agree. And should. And, and should. Right. Yeah. No, I'm in the same boat as you. My first couple at bats with lean construction, I was on back to back hard bid projects, traditional design bid build and and it didn't even occur to me that I was swimming upstream. So I like that uh, you're reinforcing. I've, I just Design bid build definitely has some, um, as you said, it's got a current that's rushing against you that makes it harder <laughs> to get people to collaborate because yeah. it's just 
by its nature, it's, it's everyone's out for themselves. And, you know, if you win, I'm probably losing. And if I win, you're probably losing. Right. And so it's hard to get people to, to give and take. And that's a message to the owners. You know, you, you get the outcomes you set your projects up for. So think about how you set them up. Yeah. You you always get exactly what you asked for. No surprises. People don't realize that that's what they're setting themselves up for, but that's actually what's happening, I think. Right. And then you mentioned, too, you, you dabble a little bit in, in CM at risk. That was probably, if I had a date, that early 90s, before your your soiree with BIM and Oshpod? Well, I'd say early 2000s. Early um, 2000s, okay. Early 2000s. And it was just, other than Sutter at the time, nobody would, I mean, Sutter really didn't start implementing IPD on more than one or two pilot projects until like 2012 or something like that. I mean, okay. it was 2015. Um, so, you know, you had the the big hospitals, but they take a decade. So right. it seems like it started <laughs> a lot earlier than it did. Um, but the C- CM at risk, even at Sutter, we did a lot of CM at risk. I mean, projects of a certain dollar value and a certain complexity, CM at risk, I think is is a good model. Um, the complexity of the time tracking and the and the cost tracking in an, a true IPD model, um, I think there's some projects that you'll never see the benefit of that. The projects are straightforward enough. If you hire good partners, people that you've worked with for a long time, even you know lump sum, you can get good outcomes. It's that right. design, bid, build, low bid, no pre-construction design bid build that gets you in trouble <laughs> right and you're still reinforcing what we know anybody who's been in the business for more than a decade the team is so critical you know who you get who gets selected has a lot to do on project success yeah i agree i've learned i learned that the hard way that you know you can have a, a company that's got got all the resume but the team you get just just doesn't have the experience to do things uh, in a lean way and vice versa. I've had companies that weren't supposed to be successful because the it wasn't their typical product that they built. It was outside of their wheelhouse, but a team was really open-minded and, and they implemented, they far exceeded my expectations. So it's more about who you get and giving them opportunity once you get them to be successful than, than the company that you hire. Uh, and the other thing I realized is you should put the right type of company on the right type of project. Um, so, you know, the, the big sophisticated contractors are, I learned, um, are probably not the right company to do like a 10,000 square foot outpatient clinic. There's, there's just too much overhead and too much process. And that some of these less sophisticated, technologically less sophisticated companies could do a great high quality job at a much better price point. So you want to actually think about what the job is and who are the right partners for it. And I don't think there's a one size fits all uh, contractor, designer, trade partner. The more you think about it, the more you want to align what you're doing with the team. Right. And some of the big general contractors have even in response to that have created small nimble groups. They only do like little TI work for, niche clients and niche markets and in certain cities. So I mean, there's, there is something to that, but, and you're right. And you know, the smaller, very nimble contractors won't be set up to handle something 
really complex. Yeah, I mean, recently, you know, and you're and thank you again for sharing on the show, James. Hundred percent appreciate that. You're under no obligation as a board member for the Lean Construction Institute to make an appearance on the show that they sponsor. So that was just cool. When you started Lean IPD a couple of years ago, I remember you sending me and a friend of mine an invite to come check out this webinar. And I was like, man, this is going to be interesting. I was like, I've never gone to a webinar that was organized by and hosted by, you know, a, a traditional owner. And your webinar is actually good. Like it was, it was <laughs> on. Yeah, I mean, it was on. We we watched it together in a conference because we were cheap. We cheaped out and just bought one ticket and sat together and watched it. This was before BCE, before COVID ever. So right. we could be in a conference room all close. And uh, you were presenting ideas on lean construction. And my friend kept elbowing me like, you see, owners do care. <laughs> it was like, I know. I know they're out there. So what, what made you get started with uh, Lean IPD, the website, and, and what is that as a, as a thing? Yeah, maybe as a little bit know. of background. So uh, my first webinars, I think, were from uh, the Lean Construction Institute. The first presentation I ever did was actually after my first IPD project. I got invited to Colorado um, back in Boulder, back when LCI was like 300 people in one room, and there were no breakout rooms. and. Yeah. Um, and I was late to the party. I mean, that was probably 15 years into it or something. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I, I did the presentation and I got some good feedback on it. And I said, well, you know, I should. Well, first of all, I saw that. So leanipd.com is a website and it's focused right. on lean construction and integrated project delivery. Uh, I'm the editor. So it's something that I put out there. But I have an excellent advisory board uh, and a ton of uh ton of experts that write content for the website, including you. And thank yeah. you very much for yeah. that. You're welcome. The reason I started the website is because I was surprised that somebody didn't own leanipd.com already. <laughs> so I bought the website uh, on a whim, probably after having a beer on a Friday night. I said, okay, I'll just put, I'll put the PDF slides of one of my presentations up there. And, see, and then I started reading a little bit like, oh, people will never they won't find it. I need to make this into a case study with HTML so that Google will rank it. And I probably spent the first three years doing the work myself um, yeah. on the weekends and at night. Um, you can pretty much learn to do anything on YouTube. You may not be able to do it well, but you can learn how to do something. And so you've got, and, we got to get you a certificate that you graduated from the, the school of YouTube. Yeah, I've, I've uh, well, I don't know if I've graduated, but I've taken some classes. Yeah. So anyway, that so it's really a passion project. Um, I like interacting with people that find the content. I like being able to share it with people. And probably more recently, what I've realized is that writing helps me form, formalize my thoughts. Mm. It helps me distill when you try to, there may be something that you know, but until you try to explain it to somebody else, you don't actually organize it and create it into chunks that you can explain and, and share with somebody. So I think the webinars and the writing made me better at my day job because I just tr had to try to explain what I was thinking. Um, so that's been an outlet for me is literally is to just try to write down what it is that I'm thinking and share it with somebody. 
That's yeah. a, a long-winded summary, but that's what no. the website is. And I think for, for people that don't know, like I myself consume James's website pretty regularly, even before I committed any content to it. There is a lot of really good stuff on that site. If you're thinking about doing lean construction on your project, even if you're not to the point yet, and it doesn't matter who you are, if you're a trade partner, general contractor, recovering general contractor, or even a construction manager, there are really good articles and content on that site that can benefit your project like right now, today. I can almost guarantee you that you're facing something right now that an article post on Lean IPD can help you with. And is definitely there have been many posts that have helped me in the, the outpouring, James, of people for the stuff that, that I've written and shared on your site has been incredible. Like, so, I mean, it people are reading the site. Like, a lot of people are reading the site. Well, that's a great endorsement. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. and the, the organization's really good. You're, I love, too, that your site is, like, I, it's a great example of a site of today, 2020. It's not dated. It's, like, fresh. It's changed over time. I remember when you rebranded it and, and, you know, updated it, and I thought, is it time to rebrand the site yet? And you'd go around the Internet, and you were probably – you know, ahead of the curve. You're definitely in the first wave of sites that were changing the appearance and the usage for folks to make it easier to navigate. So my hat's off help. to you. That yeah. was above my YouTube skills. That was the point where I, uh, I've i done a, a small amount of consulting and that's all plowed back. In. So I actually hired somebody to help me do that because <laughs> it was hey. above, there's a vision there, but no skills. No, no, no. That's in true ownership style. You hire others. So you know where your, your expertise domain is and where it's not. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no. so that's that's good. And that, that gives me my weekends back mostly. Yeah, that, that is really good. But, uh, yeah, the content is really good, uh, even just the, the approach. And you mentioned some things that I think might be worth exploring a little deeper, like target value delivery. And you specifically said, if you can get your partners to do it with you. And I think that is a, that's a great thing because I've been asked inside of our company, like, when should we apply TVD, target value delivery, target value design? Some people say design, but if you include construction work, we have to change it yeah. to delivery. And why would a general contractor ever not include construction? We wouldn't. So it's always TVD with delivery at the end. But uh I always tell people like you want to have the owner bought in like you want to be sure that the owner wants this because the the amount of work that they have to do is if a regular job the work level for them is here like on a on a design bid build and maybe a design build is somewhere here tvd for an owner is like here it's like the most involved that they can possibly be i think right i, I can't think of, I mean, outside of an ifoa Right, in most integrated forms of agreement, you're using the target value delivery approach anyway. Yeah. You know, that I like the way you put that, though, because that's true. A lot of times people will say, why don't more people do IPD in general? And I said, because it's a lot of work. Yeah, um, it is. And uh, I heard an owner one time say, you know, we're going to go with design build because we just don't have the PMs to do the the upfront work for the projects, which... I, I didn't agree with it first, but now that I have more of a programmatic view, I get it. It's, right. it's a lot of work. Um, I've never learned more about design and construction and how things work than being on an IPD job surrounded by experts 
and working through issues like why should we use different uh, structural systems or different ways of cooling the building or what are the different ways we could distribute the power um, like what the most fun thing is doing target value design when you have like project engineers that it's their first job and you see just how much they absorb and learn because in a traditional environment you get your one discipline right, right. but you're not exposed to the other disciplines the way you are in that kind of big room TVD approach. So, yeah. How many times do people on traditional projects get the opportunity to hear other cross-functional teams presenting on options? I mean, that never, we never see that in traditional delivery ever, ever. And you, you couldn't even see it at a conference. I've never even gone to a conference and seen like a mock big room cluster report out. I've, I've heard people talk about someday doing it, but I mean, short of having that in your portfolio of jobs to go be a part of, it's uh, it's something you're not going to get to witness very often. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, maybe a future webinar idea for you, James. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's exhausting, but it is the most fun. I mean, sitting in, in a room like that when everybody's kind of trying to climb the same hill. Um right. And, you know, the budgets sometimes are aggressive and, and you really have to think outside the box. But those, I think, are the most fun. No, we just make jokes behind the scenes, James. We say that all owners go to the same school and they learn that at some point in the project, they have to start acting like they're broke. And they have to tell the team that, uh, you know, they just got word and we got to cut 20% off of this budget or we're 20% over budget. You know that in programming, we're already 20% over. You know, we hear these numbers all the time and I, I always laugh and you see people on the team that are new and it, you just say like, no, this is just part of the game. This is part of the fun of it. Like if you didn't have that constraint, the design team would not be as creative. Like amazing things come out when you're back against the wall, having to be really creative. And then even better on these jobs where they, they show, you know, here's the number and everybody on the team can see full transparency. Where are we in the budget? And they know that what I do with my team affects whether we're going to make it or not. Yeah, it is. There is a manual. It's in chapter one. We all, <laughs> as soon as you become an owner, they actually, they mail it to you. It's true. Uh, oh, I, we suspected it. Now the we've secret been is confirmed. Out. It's been confirmed. Here it was. Let's mark it. 2020, we found out. The secret is out. We'll yeah. just have to lower it to 30% or something. Yeah, you to should. You should just say 50%. Just watch what kind of innovation comes out of that. But you're right when you say it's part of the game. I mean, one of my favorite things on a project is in the IPD jobs, what the grounds for change orders are a little bit different. So, you know, things that the team should have known are generally not increases to the contract. This, people still get paid for them. Right. And so one of my favorite things is when the, the designer or the builder comes back with a well-articulated argument about why something should be my cost. <laughs> and because it never starts that way because the rules right. are different and it takes a while for people to to adopt the new rules but you can tell when someone gets the game now and they come back and i generally you know pat them on the back and say you know welcome to the game let's play now and then <laughs> yes. i'm like oh i'm gonna have to up my game now yeah <laughs> But those are fun. Those are fun, yeah. especially a hospital, right? You're a team for like four or five years together. Yeah. These are not quick things. No, no, they're not. They become like family. We've had, 
we've had partners that have done IPD projects and as it's getting to an end, you can see people getting like the long faces. They don't want it to be over. And we even had people that, you know, the, the contract where they were, um, not the contract with the market where they were, didn't allow for them to go to a subsequent IPD job. And they started looking to go elsewhere. Where else could they go? And there's also, there's a lot of, there's a lot of groups that are trying like their first one, but there aren't many groups that have made a, you know, that, that have 20 right. within their program. And one, I think it's hard. Um, even at Sutter, like every couple of years, we had to kind of represent to the board of directors why it was a good idea. Because I think design bid build is really easy. Like if you're going to go buy a car, you know, and it's yeah. the same car from three dealerships, whoever's going to give you the best price, right. you should buy it from them unless there's you know, some kind of service or your brother owns one of the dealerships or something. Right? <laughs> then it's a no brainer. Don't buy his unless you're right. in good terms. <laughs> um, but design and construction is just not that way. It's, it's infinitely complex. It's, it's like wanting to buy a car and having all the parts delivered to your driveway <laughs> and then having 20 different companies show up and try to put them together, you know? <laughs> right. And then all the 20 different places all built to specs with ranges and they don't have to look at how do the things actually fit together. It's so annoying. And then my favorite. So then, so I go through that process. And then if I want another car, like now my wife wants a car. Right. So instead of hiring all those same people, I'll go hire somebody else to start from scratch. Yes. And, and I'll build my whole supply chain yeah. again. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. It is crazy. It is. It is. So, but uh, no, the, so I want to ask you now that you've got, you're, uh, you've been attending YouTube University and doing Lean IPD. Let's just say it's a successful website, hands down. You got a, a thriving board on there, a lot of good contributors. Shameless plug. You can check out more articles on Lean IPD's website anytime you like. Uh, <laughs> LeanIPD.com slash blog. That's right. LeanIPD.com slash blog. We'll put it right here and we'll just let it stay there on the screen for a little bit. <laughs> Give people a chance to get it. And it'll be in the show notes too. So don't worry about that. There'll be a hyperlink for your convenience. We've we've mastered that. But what's something that uh, has been surprising to you, James? You know, hosting that, not necessarily on the technical side, but what's surprising, like any kind of feedback from the industry that when you started this out that you didn't anticipate that's been either a good surprise or a negative surprise? So starting on the positive, um, I'm surprised at how much IPD there is in Canada. Um, <laughs> and it's most IPD project, if not all IPD projects in the U S are done by private owners in Canada. Almost all of the IPD projects are, are done on government projects. Wow. Uh, so their procurement rules are different and um, so a lot of like fire stations, civic centers, schools are being delivered in Canada. And uh, it's actually like a, a, a really, it's growing. Whereas I would yeah. say on the downside here for all of the positive case studies that are out there about um, integrated project delivery and just lean construction in general for right. all of the case studies that are out there uh, I'm just, I'm surprised that the adoption curve is so low. Um, and I mean, that's, that's our job, right? That's your job. That's, that's my right. job. Spread the word. Um, 
and share share i'm just surprised the i thought that was the you're gonna go positive you went negative you went you tricked me you went, I went well a... i started positive because i like that everything's yeah. done in canada yeah. um yeah that's that's the positive is that uh there are ipd jobs and that i've i've learned that because i get more people reaching out for information from canada than i do from the u.s that's wow so that's a surprise to me um yeah the <laughs> negative i guess yeah. is not so much from the website but you put all this information out there and people either aren't interested because they believe with all of their heart and soul that they're already doing everything already or that they're just not interested and and so that's frustrating that is i'm only laughing because i get that all the time yeah you've yeah. always done you've i've been doing yeah. this you know since that's 1900. it's like a that's like a trigger word for a trigger phrase for me when i hear someone say but we've always done this or like and this being lean we've been lean we've always been doing it that's right it's uh it's interesting to hear that it's it always depends on who the individual is how they respond i don't have the boilerplate like you said one size doesn't fit all there's not a one size fits all response for that phrase either but it's always right. interesting because they usually the people that say stuff like that james that's like a defense state a statement back to you when you're sharing something it's never like this and we've always done this and we're it's great to learn this new thing you're doing or this this new thing you're doing like for 20 years or this new thing that you're doing on over 20 projects right people are still like no it can't be no this other way is better it's like no i remember going to a conference it was, i think it was a design build institute western region conference two years ago and one of the keynote speakers was talking about uh, prefabrication and this gentleman owns a, a prefabrication company i want to say his name is ryan miller and i can't remember the name of the company off the top of my head but I'll, I'll look it up. If somebody messages me, I'll, I'll find him. And he was saying that uh, the design and construction industry has become commoditized to a certain extent. And most of the companies are just eking out these little tiny niche margins. And I kept thinking like, well, you obviously don't talk to subcontractors because their margins are way healthier. <laughs> and it's, you know, there's a level where a specialization does get you either when you're early to specialization, you can have a higher return. And I'm sure you've got IPD case studies where the owner got a lot of scope for a, for little cost, right? But then as, as time goes on and people start to learn what the new normal is, you start seeing some diminishing returns. And that's where I think, you know, some of that is in the industry. We have this incredible momentum. Like I was talking to this with someone on the show, $3 trillion a year, what we spend in the U.S. on construction, $3 trillion, right? That's design and construction and support. Right? It's a big number, but global economy, it's not that big of a number, but every country builds. It's done everywhere. It's, you, I mean, we see, I can't even see pictures of things abroad, like, cause I can't go anywhere right now, but when I used to before, and you don't see like in progress construction photos in the background, but like how are we not getting better? Someone has said that one of the root causes could be lack of sharing. So here we are, you have a website, I have a podcast we're trying to share and uh yeah i'm also surprised the same i've seen the same thing the outpouring from outside the u.s is far greater than inside the u.s 
for people tapping my shoulder for help or just being curious. Interesting. Yeah, I see the same thing. And I think some of that is uh, a friend of mine in a different industry said that there's this thing that's called the arrival syndrome. You ever heard of it, James? So the arrival syndrome is this a psychological type of thinking mindset that once you've achieved a certain level of success, you get comfortable and complacent like you made it. And they, we see this in sports teams all the time. It's like, you know, it's you'll see a team win, and you can tell that I'm a Chicago fan, right? You, we won in a World Series finally, and then you don't see the team just automatically continue to win. There are some dynasty teams for sure in any sports, right? But they're rare. But they're, they're not, rare. They're less common than. It's very rare, and they, and people have said the hardest thing to do is to just not get complacent, or what people have called, coined the arrival syndrome. So another another take on that, which I appreciate that, that makes a lot of sense, is that the people are successful in this system. There are a lot of construction companies. There are a lot of design companies. Um, there's a lot of people making good salaries. Right. Um, I was joking, there's no, a lot of new trucks on the road, right? Whenever right. my car breaks down and I'm like, I should go work for a contractor because at least then I would get a gas car and a truck and I wouldn't have to worry about taking my car to the shop. So the, the point of all of that is that, you know, like we said earlier, the owners are setting up the game and the designers and builders are finding a way to win at that game. And so until you start to change the rules, like maybe things are not going to change because people have figured out how to play the game. Um, I think about this a lot in some ways, the best motivation for the design, the construction industry to improve is with all lump sum contracts where they get to keep all of the gains, the the cost reimbursed contracts, I think, they're not the way to get the cheapest project. I think they're the way to get the product that you want and to, to know how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take to get it before you spend a lot of money. So you can invest one to 2% of your project budget, get your team on board and, and quote validated or whatever you want to call that initial phase. Sure. And you can get reliability out of that. And you, the team can help you, with that TVD we talked about, make all those trade-offs. Um, but none of that, you know, another downside is after 20 IPD projects, the cost of the jobs were still way more than they were 10 years earlier. It's like, we weren't doing things for less. I used to joke that if anything, costs were going up less fast, <laughs> you know, which is, yeah. I thought yeah. my first IPD project, like, oh, we just do the job for 30% less. And the more time I spend, like the, the nature of the way the industry is organized and contracts are set up and the way the supply chain works and the way we, it, it's structurally very difficult to drive out 30%. I'm convinced there's 30 to 50% waste in the system. But getting it out is really, really, really hard. I don't know how to do it yet. It's even more than that. Researchers have spent years looking at this. And I remember looking at a report by University of Minnesota, Dodge Data Analytics, and they threw some numbers out in conjunction with other surveys that have been done with Construction Industry Institute that the number is somewhere between 60 to 80% waste. So just that's like, you know, every dollar in construction you spend 
you got 40 cents potentially, if not almost 50 cents, you're paying too much. Yeah, the owners are paying too much. The issue is that money doesn't disappear. That shows up as wages, you know. Right. It shows up. People, you know, that money is getting spent in the supply chain. Right. But it's not getting spent on things that anyone wants, not valuable things necessarily, right? If we're trying to build a hospital that can treat patients, we might be spending a lot of money on inspections or other things that are necessary evils due to a myriad of reasons because it's complex like you said right how many mm-hmm. people are stepping back and saying how can we design this thing so that it just gives us more of what we want faster yeah i think and it's there's those there's a couple of companies out there that are trying like the kateras of the world uh you know and i'm hoping that some good case studies come out of those where in that case i feel it's like an owner steps in and says i'm gonna i'm gonna own the entire supply chain and yeah. then from that, I'll try to drive waste out. Now, I think, you know, people are trying to do it in traditional methodologies by buying traditional companies and putting them together. Yeah, I think you almost need a completely bottom up. Um, I'm going to build a supply chain from scratch, which uh, I don't know how much venture capital you need for that, but a lot, I think. I mean, well, there's there's I can think of three case studies all by the same CEO where that's happened. SpaceX, Tesla, right? Solar City, right? Yeah, and funnel fundamentally based on the on the numbers and the science. Like this is what should be possible. Yeah. It was simple ideas like I'm just gonna hire the smartest people. Like I can hear Elon in the back of my head. I'm just gonna hire the smartest people. We're gonna solve hard problems. We're gonna have fun doing what we do. And that's like how they go. And now you you see a very siloed automotive industry, even companies like Toyota looking to, well, we got to adapt. We can't ignore what Tesla's doing in the, in the car space. And then you've got all kinds of things with electronic cars becoming just prevalent and predominant in the market. All the high luxury brands are already there, right? I mean, this has all happened really fast. I, I remember hearing somebody was talking the other day and said that the electric car was invented first, and then something like almost 10 years later, the gas engine was invented for the gas car. And like, why do we go to, why do we go gas? <laughs> like, why don't we just stay electric? It's like, that's an interesting fact. Yeah, and if you think about all the transportation costs associated with hauling gas around, it's, it's like, it can't be, there's just some basic physics there <laughs> right. of moving, moving weight around that don't seem like they make sense in the long term. Yeah, so I think I think you're onto something in the in capital construction and and you want to I think it'd be more for serial builders like a health system or a university or governments that are on the build every year, not the one-off, you know, things. Though there are some interesting stories with one-off and smaller mm-hmm. smaller things definitely. I mean, there is this momentum in the industry though. Like everyone right away wants to say, I want to mitigate risk, right? So just do what you've always done because you, you know where your problems are going to be. So when that when it happens, nobody's like surprised. If you got to go back to your boss and say, yeah, the contractor took longer than their schedule said it would, they're not going to even get mad at you. They're not even going to raise their voice at you, James. They're going to be like, that's what happens in construction. Three out of four jobs are late. Three out of four jobs are over budget. And people just accept it. Yeah, they do. 
It's right? frustrating. Yeah, it is. Because you could be doing other things. Like from our perspective on the contractor side, we'd like to be chasing more work. We'd like to get the next thing and, and keep our people employed longer. Staying on a project longer doesn't make anybody any extra money. It's the same is true for the, the trade community. Like I always tell the the foreman, we'll get to talk to foreman, your companies don't pay you any extra for being here longer, right? And they're like, no, we often, it's a bad thing to be here right. longer than we estimated. <laughs> so, so we all, we have some things that we have in common. There's definitely some common ground that we can move together. And I think uh, there are some promising things happening. You know, organizations like LCI, where you've got owners talking to each other. I'm the vice chair of the Lean Construction Institute's community practice in St. Louis. And there were a couple of owners on our panel, and they said the greatest value to them of being on the core team is being able to talk across organizations with other owners about, you know, what can be done, what's possible. They didn't even know. Right. It's almost like someone has a website and they're not advertising it well so that people can even see what's there. <laughs> right. They're giving <laughs> how, it away, but nobody knows yeah. it's there. How can we how can we get people to know what's there and like how impactful it is? You know, Every I like uh the and we gotta I mean this is on me and, and on is you gotta meet you got to put it in terms that are valuable to the receiver, right? What's in it right. for me, that whole, what's, right. and uh, I think the best case of lean adoption that I've seen a plug for uh, Dave McNeil of On Point Lean is his like breakout presentation at LCI many years ago. He talked about this, uh, it was like a hot dip galvanizing plant down in uh, Louisiana and they were building two of them at the same time. So it's one of the only case studies I know where somebody's literally building the exact same thing right next to each other. Okay. And one was implemented with 5S and last planner system. And the other one was implemented just with the traditional process. But eventually the traditional process guys wanted to implement lean. <laughs> and the reason that they did is because the guys on the lean job were getting to the bar two hours earlier every day than they were. <laughs> And they were like, how are you guys getting here so early? And they're like, oh, we got this, you know, this lean thing that we're doing. We're spray painting colors on our stuff and organizing it. And, you know, so what's in it for me? Um, yeah. I think the takeaway for me is you got to you got to think about we got to do a better job of packaging it for people so they know yeah. what's in it for me. I saw timely, timely their cross cross promotion here. Lean Enterprise Institute published an article today on Planet Lean that said, uh, here's the lean marketing canvas. And it's essentially, it's the it's the business canvas that a lot of entrepreneurs would recognize, but it's for how to market lean inside your organization or outside the customers because people that do lean don't know how to market well. I mean, stereotypically, I'm not talking about everybody. Yeah. So if you're out there and I'm you're doing- I'm in that boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me too. I, I remember people asking me, I had a new person start recently that uh, has become one of my mentees. And uh, she was asking like, what is lean? And I told her what it is. And it's, you know, fundamentally equates to just the mindset of learning, right? Learning is the biggest thing. I said, yeah, there are some principles. Respect for people is super big. If you don't have that, you won't be into anything else and continuous improvement. But it's all about having like a learning mindset and always being in a learning mode. And uh, they were like, that's it? That's the big fuss? Like, it's that's too simple. 
like, it'll take a, you your whole life to figure it out though <laughs> no, i'd always laugh because because you know like when you come at it from the outside and i came at it the same way like i thought you know a decade ago it was just if you just eliminated waste you'd be lean and it took me years to to not know it that way years yeah i don't really even talk about waste with the t- actually right i was telling someone the other day so i've been in my job now at ucsf for a year and i haven't talked about lean at all <laughs> um i've talked about making things visual i've talked yeah. about getting things out quickly and getting feedback on it you know this idea yeah. don't let um perfect be the enemy of good like right. let's not design this thing forever and never actually show it to anyone um this concept of a validation and getting people on board early um you know i'm not like i need an ipd contract i'm working with our team like find a way to get trades on board early so we can get their input before we go for funding like yeah. figure out how to do that yeah. I don't care how we do it. You could even just uh, buy them a, a breakfast or a lunch. They'll show up and give you feedback if you feed them. Right. It was like my whole, yeah. I went 12 years in my career before I first learned the term free con. You know, I was like, how did I get that far without knowing something that funny? <laughs> <laughs> no, we we have a saying in the office all the time. Like when someone in pre-construction is talking about this really awesome job, where was like, but wait, is it free con or is it pre-con? Yeah. And then, and then continue the conversation because it, it, it will react differently. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. But for all my designer friends out there that I think it was David Marr that said this, I don't understand why it's pre-con and construction. You know, it's why is it not like design and post-design? Like, I don't, I don't get this. <laughs> and the obvious answer is because design is never done. There's no such thing <laughs> as post-design. <laughs> I remember we were doing the thing with the team uh, last week, and it was the first time ever the leads of this wanted to go. They're still in programming, so it's way early on. And uh, they're like, why don't we try one of these agile approaches? Because the architect just hates last planner system for some reason. No reason that anyone even knows. Like, probably we didn't even ask, why don't you right. like it? All right, so they were like, okay, we'll try this agile approach. And, and the team's like, well, it's good because we have all this work. We've got, like, this ton of work to do, like, you know, just a stack of work to do and it's not getting done and the deadline's in 60 days. And I said, well, I bet you when we do this and you start making the work visual, like you said, we're going to find out that a lot of this design is already in progress and we need to slow it down and actually stop some of it and let more of it go in the right sequence. And sure enough, when we started visualizing what the work was, we had 10 people on the phone and we we're doing it, a digital scrum board. And we found out there was all kinds of things in flight, James, that would not need to be done until like five days before the big turnover reveal to the client. And we had to pull those things back. And I was like, that's why you got to make your work visual, because especially with knowledge work, so much of it's invisible. You got to let people see and then react to what's the most important thing today. Yeah. Like, so for... What's the most important thing we can do for, for lean IPD? What's if you are a brand new person coming to the site, where should they go first? Just to the integrated project delivery page and read, just read. There's kind of a summary about some of the key concepts. Um, I define 
integrated project delivery is kind of a combination of a contract lean construction principles and a collaborative culture. Nice. And so, you know, if it's like we had said, you know, you can do IPD without lean and lean without IPD. Um, if you don't have a culture where people want to work together and that you have actually have to work at that, it, it yeah. happens, but it happens over a real long period of time. And so if you want it to happen right. faster, um, so that's what I would suggest. Just, um, there's, uh, a lot of good information out there on, uh, lean construction and just, just start to get exposed to it. And, uh, I don't think you need to be a PhD in this stuff to start practicing it. Right. Agreed. Like, yeah. You know, get out there and roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty yes. <laughs> more than anything. Get your hands dirty. Yeah. And you guys have been on the, uh, you're on the Northern California lean community practice core team at one of your last events. I remember somebody saying, get, you know, get started and just get started and get started. Right. <laughs> it could have been you. I think it might've actually been you. I have this, uh, this candle that a friend gave me like 20 years ago, but I still have it because I've never lit it, yeah. but it's, the box says the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Right. So that's, that's the philosophy there. Right. You got to start. You've got to start. You've got to, it doesn't matter what contract you're on. You've heard it here from James himself. And then here's my other, uh, my other words of advice. I don't, I don't think you could read this. Oh, well, yeah, I can read it. It says good judgment comes from experience experience comes from bad judgment <laughs> so those That's are my idea. words to live by yeah the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and good judgment comes from experience experience comes from bad judgment <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of that's yeah. lean for me and in, in uh in two quotes no that's uh that's really interesting and i wanted to ask you you know you're on LCI's board and you're helping to to shape what's going on. You've even been on a couple of Congress planning calls, especially when we shifted from pre-pandemic knowledge to, to post, because we were originally going to be in Detroit this year in 2020, and now we've gone 100% virtual. What was that like, you know, just making that decision? Were there any, were, the, did, were there some debating involved, or was it just like, it's just a clear no-brainer right thing to do? Uh, well, so a little, little background. Um, so I got involved in the Northern California community of practice pretty quickly and uh, been involved in that group for about 10 years. And we put on local events and, right. you know, the venues get too expensive. And so we've been moving it around, trying to make sure that we at least break even on the events. And, um, and so I was the treasurer for a while and just looking at what does it cost to put on events? Yeah. Um, and then I I had the really the honor to join the national board in January. And so it was clear that people were volunteering for things. And so I volunteered to be on the finance committee and I was the only volunteer for the finance committee. Uh, so Mike Ston, the chair called me in like February, early March and said, Hey, would you be the treasurer? I mean, you really don't have to do much because the finances are pretty locked in. Um, you know, we've, we've been consistent for years, um, but we, we need somebody to fill that role. And I said, okay, is, if you think it's not going to be a lot of work, you know, I'll take, 
<laughs> selfishly because I got other things to do. Famous last words. Um, and yeah, and then this thing called the the coronavirus hits, and yeah. in March, and I was on calls once or twice a week because you know background for people without without disclosing everything is that when you yeah. put on a conference of fifteen hundred people you now have to make a commitment three years in advance to have a hotel, a block of rooms and a conference center that can have, we, the lean construction conference in person is a room that fits 1500 people, but then a whole bunch of, you know, 20 breakout rooms for all the other things. And so you need a pretty good size convention center with hotels that can hold that. And so in order to get one, so we're, it's like Phoenix next year, St. Louis the year, or New Orleans the year after. So it's it's already booked out several years. Yeah. And uh, so we had to pay a significant amount of the, the hotels in April, right when it had started. And it wasn't clear if the event was going to happen or not. And so all of a sudden, you start looking at the cash flow going like, wow, we're going to go from um, from having money left at the end of the year that we can reinvest to have a bigger Congress the year after, uh, to, you know, maybe we're not going to be able to put on the event. What's, I mean, and we looked at different scenarios and the worst scenario, uh, which probably would have happened now in hindsight, uh, but we're trying to decide in April is this thing is just starting is to hold the event and have no one show up. That was the biggest, you know, the biggest thing because it costs a lot of money to put on an in-person event like that. Um, you know, if you haven't been in person, I'd highly encourage you to go. It's not just a yeah. plug. It's it's yeah. really a lot of fun. Um, I consider it like a family reunion now when I yeah. go. I see people from all over the country that have a uh, similar mindset to you and me that, that are out there trying things. All And the stories are great. Yes, the presentations are. are good, but the happy hours are better. Way better. Um, so all of that, to, so we started looking at this idea of a virtual conference. And so, you know, kudos to you and the team for really, as you mentioned earlier, planning two conferences. Yeah, Because the work was really, I forget when exactly you do the call for speakers, but it, in general, you have all the speakers figured out in the April, May timeframe. Right. Is that right? So typically, so the agenda is figured out. Um, you know, it's uh, kudos to you and the conference planning team. And that is an amazing and it's a volunteer effort. Right. Um, yeah. It's an incredible yeah. lift. Yeah, to thank put you. On. I remember Jeff Crichton calling me. He's the chair. And he said, uh, is it typically this much work? He's like, I'm on the phone. It feels like every day. But he's like, I know it's not every day, but it just feels like it's like, well, Jeff, you're planning two two events, and if you allow the team to keep going with this third idea of a hybrid, you're you're going to plan three events, and at some point someone's going to make a decision. So you just got to think with a little bit that you know who can we talk to, you know who can LCI get involved, and figure this out. And uh, they started reaching out to some more of the support people, like the conference conference direct that they work with, and got some really good feedback from from that team. Things that we just didn't have the perspective on. And that helped to inform the team. And as the information came in, it became more obvious, like what should be done. I've heard people today, James, talking about events that 
you know, some people just put their head down and said, we're going to have our event anyway, and no one showed up. I've heard from a couple of people that have had, like, even just simple golf things across the country. It kind of depends on where you are, and no one comes. And then other other places where people practice socially distancing and, and you see, you know, some smaller form of it happen, but it's not the same. A friend of ours was even talking about just having a friend get together at a dinner for, like, a you know, a baby shower, and they just couldn't even do it with the restaurant. There wasn't a restaurant in their area that could handle 20 people showing up. They just and couldn't spread do it. out enough. And spread out enough. Yeah, it couldn't, it could not, it could not be done where they lived. I mean, just a lot of change for folks. And one of the lucky things that, that we did as a Congress planning team is that A, we drink our own Kool-Aid, right? So we're, right. we know we have to adapt. So when, when a change happened, I remember Romano, who's on the board too, told the team he's like this the enthusiasm that you guys have maintained you know given all the changes we're throwing at you has just been unbelievable and the team's like well we have to because that's just what we do we have to adapt we have to i think and also you have a chance to share this congress with people in a way that hasn't been shared before because in a virtual environment um you know, I, in looking at my own budgeting, I mean, it's two to $3,000 to send somebody in person for four days to a conference with flights and hotel rooms. So it's a significant investment. And, uh, you know, you can attend all four days for, for less than a thousand dollars. I forget what the exact pricing is. Um, more people can attend without the travel. And so, you know, I think you and the others really got on board with this idea of like, this could be the biggest conference ever. I mean, it's going to be different. It's going to be different for sure because um, we've got more days of program, right. And shorter days of program because we all know what the, the zoom fatigue is real. I read an article the other day about zoom apnea that they've done some studies that you actually (laughs) stop breathing on conference calls and Well, you got me laughing so hard. There's no chance of us stopping breathing <laughs> on this one. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's I yeah. think it's going to be exciting. Um, just one other one other kind of joke is if we weren't able to get out all all the deposits for the hotels, but we still did a virtual event. I was going to organize just a massive party. We were going to go to Detroit <laughs> and see if we could work through the deposit. Um, uh-huh. So instead, yeah. the the folks in Detroit were excellent. So now that essentially what we did is negotiated to push it out three years so that we will go to Detroit eventually. Um, Probably after the virtual Congress this year, we'll start talking in, in December or January about whether it's likely that we're going to have an in-person event a year from now. Um, Uh, It's hard to say there's so many variables with that, but, but you're totally right. If you have never been to Congress before in person and I had only started attending my first Congress, I think, was only five years ago. In uh, Chicago, was my first one. And I and yeah, you've got it. You've got to definitely go, and if you can, and the the virtual is going to be really good. I've I've recorded all my session, James, like a good little volunteer. All my session recordings are done, and I I'm going to have a blast uh, interacting with the attendees and the chat during my entire presentation because I won't be busy running my mouth like I usually am. <laughs> I right. Answer questions and 
and even connect with people post post event like that's one of the great things about the communities of practice i want to plug them too because the networking you can do in the communities of practice like because of covid i've been able to participate with southern california which i couldn't do as often uh because of the travel we used to you know get lucky and align the stars to be down there for a project reason and then do it and then even attending your events in in this neck of the woods now has been like a no-brainer when something comes up if my calendar's open i'm there you know throw my money in i think you guys charge too little though should charge yeah we go back and forth on that yeah yeah it's, it's definitely for the value that people get like i remember the the last one that i went to you had a team from university of california davis presenting on an eye center project and hearing the client talk about i had to write it down i was so excited she was ecstatic with the team's progress like hitting where they needed to be with with budget and being ahead of schedule the architect working so tight together with the general contractor was refreshing right these are not my words these are her words right and they shared it with everybody they're just like here's how we did it so you have all these people calling in i think you had some people from overseas too you had some international participants as well and seeing like look at what can be done and and it's just that that collaboration that happens in that group i i was telling the board at or romano you know in the team in the last time we're early on with this planning team where else does that happen where else do people just let their guard down and just be honest about what's going on yeah this virtual format allows us to to network more outside um you know we did a, a virtual meeting and we implemented the breakout rooms for just networking where you get these little short yeah. and I don't know why I was surprised, but there were people from all over the country, uh, which was interesting, who I never would have met, you know, at a local event if we're meeting in in Oakland or something. We're not going to have people in general fly in for the event. But when it's online, (laughs) people can stop in for an hour. Yeah. And you guys do your uh, your salad talk. What do you what do you do that? That's like I think that's unique to your group. Um, well, there's one thing about you do the continue, you do the plus deltas at the end of every meeting, right? right. So whatever's working gets repeated and whatever's yeah. not eventually dies off. So I don't know when it started, but the salad chat is we ask a question to the group when we were in person, they would be at dinner yeah. and, uh, during the salad supposedly. And <laughs> it's usually a question that's asked to get people to talk to each other, but also some kind of leading question that the presentation will then go much deeper into detail on. And uh, it virtually it worked too. So we gave people a salad chat for the breakout room. So if they didn't know each other, they had something to talk about. In my case, you know, you end up with somebody, you know, and maybe we didn't talk that much about the salad chat. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. I remember being at one of your events in Walnut Creek and I bumped into a lighting design architect and we were in the salad chat and that ended up being a great relationship. I, I got a chance to go tour her office in San Francisco and we ended up, we had some mutual friends and it was just like, wow, I never would have been able to do that had we not had the salad chat, right? Because I ended up sitting at a table after the salad chat where people that I knew. I was like, I see you guys right. all the time. <laughs> You know, there's maybe something to be said, too, for if you truly buy into this idea of continuous improvement, it means that you're open to the fact that whatever you're doing today is not as good as it can be. Yes. Right. So you're, there's an inherent humbleness like 
I know what I'm doing can be better and that I need to go learn from other people and I need to improve. So the point of that is like you put a room of people that are just open to say, yeah, I tried this and it didn't work. And I, I find that those relationships become really good relationships. And a lot of those people I consider to be friends um, yeah. that I've, I've worked with over many, many years where before I got involved in LCI, just the lean construction in general and IPD, when you finished a job, you never wanted to see the people again, right? It was like, <laughs> I cannot wait until this job is over and I never have to work with these people again. And my first IPD job finished and you know a bunch of the different trades and the designers we got together for dinner and celebrated a, a job well done. And I was like, I wanna do that again. Yeah. Like, that was cool. That's very cool. Those are rare. And you, you're lucky. You're lucky ducky. You've had so many of those happen time after time. And you forged extremely deep relationships. So there's a lot of good people out there, right? If you, right. but you got to be a joke that they, uh, in an IPD, the smartest, best people are your allies. And if you have an adversarial contract, the smartest, best people are going to be kicking your butt every day. <laughs> They're going to outwork you. They're going to out hustle you. So I'm like, Hey, I'm not that smart. I'm, I don't, you know, I better get these guys on my side and yeah. I better get these teams on my side to help out. Yeah. That's really good. I like that, uh, that helping mode that you're in. And I want to, I want to close down our little talk on that positive helping mode. You went back to things that I like, and that's just thinking about there are other people who figured it out that can help you. I definitely agree. And you've been great, James, you know, sharing your time with people and some of your insights. You definitely made me laugh a ton, <laughs> a ton. I'm going to go back and I'm going to share that uh, that sign with my son. And as I tell him, like, whenever he has a hard day, I was like, what a great character building day it was. Right. We learn more from the hard days than the good days sometimes. Absolutely. That's great. But yeah, thank you, man, for coming on the show. Really appreciate you being here. Well, Felipe, I appreciate you inviting me and and just keep it up. I love that you've got this podcast going and I love the content that you're putting out and uh, I think you're going to make a difference. So thank yeah. you for that. Thank you, James. Thank you. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. <laughs> <laughs>